0: Thank you again for being a part of the Kinexus podcast series. This webinar, like all others, can be found on our website, kinexus.com webinars, and then click on the link for the archive library. If you want to see the visuals that Jamie Flinchbaugh used for this webinar, we suggest you go there. You can see a video recording that's synced with the audio. Uh, Jamie did uh, a very unique uh, approach here. Instead of using traditional PowerPoint slides, he was drawing on screen with his tablet. Um, So if you want to see that, again, go to kinexus.com slash webinars. But even without those visuals, Jamie has a lot of really great things to say. So we hope you enjoy this podcast wherever you're listening. And we would love to hear uh, your feedback. If you're listening during your commute, while you're exercising, we'd love to hear how you're using these podcasts you can email mark at kinexus.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Uh, Good afternoon, uh, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are. I want to welcome you to our webinar titled How to Drive Improvement Behaviors to Increase Performance Gains. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us here today. I'm Mark Graben. I'm the VP of Customer Success for Kynexus. I'm the author of the books Lean Hospitals and Healthcare Kaizen, and I will be the host and moderator today. I'm really happy to be joined uh, with a, by a good friend of mine and a good friend of Kynexus's. He is Jamie Flinchbaugh, and he's going to be our main presenter today. Jamie Flinchbaugh is a Lean author, speaker, and advisor he co founded the Lean Learning Center and co authored The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean, a great book that I highly recommend. Jamie has advised companies such as Intel, Harley Davidson, Crayola, BMW, and Amazon.com. He's helped build almost 20 companies as either a co founder, board member, advisor, or angel investor. He holds degrees from Lehigh University, University of Michigan, and MIT, and continues to teach and mentor on campus.
1: And hello to everyone. Hopefully, you can see a title page here. As uh, as we we do a try a, a different approach here, as, uh, as you're part of my my lifelong pursuit of destroying PowerPoint everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be joining everybody uh, in this uh, in this process. This is a topic that's been very important to me um, because really my entire pursuit of Lean over the last 25 years has has really centered around getting the behaviors right in the organization from one end to the other. Um, so so as I go through this, I'm going to share a lot of stories. Um, I'm going to share a lot of tactics, a lot of specific ideas uh, and experiences that we've had uh, because we, we don't want to approach this abstractly. We want to approach this with things that we can go do. And so i uh, want to do it and I'll spend most of my time on, on how and I encourage you to ask lots of questions as we go. So let me uh, let me get started here and I encourage you to you know uh, follow up with via Twitter and, and other means as after the fact and certainly please ask good questions. I really really love the questions that we get. So why do why do behaviors matter so much for continuous improvement? well, here's this isn't really a formula. This is kind of a, 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 a form of formula that, that we've centered around that really drives the results that we start to see. So it starts with our principles. Another word for that is beliefs or mental models. Um, also, values is used. Um, values is often sort of meant to be a broader term, but it's really a synonym. They all mean how we think, uh, our thought process. And and there's a lot of different principles and beliefs. There's what we call surface-level beliefs. Um, I've been inside all day. I might believe that it's a nice day outside, and if I just walk outside and get rained on, I know it's not. It doesn't take a lot of data to change those beliefs. And then there's deeply, deeply held beliefs. That's who we are. That's our personality. That's how we were raised we're really talking about the stuff that's in the middle. It's probably invisible to us. It's not easy to change, but it's very feasible to change. And we see it happen all the time. How this shows up is with our behaviors. That's the visible part of of our principles. We can't see how somebody thinks. That's impossible. We can only see how they act. Um, And we can surmise how they think based on how they act, but we could often get that wrong. Principles, behaviors are observable, but I might see one behavior, and it, the principle behind it is what I call malicious compliance. Oh, they, are, they are doing what they're supposed to do, but they don't really support it. Or they could be all in and doing it for the right reasons. I may not be able to distinguish in the behavior unless I see enough instances that I have enough data. The instance of, of, of behavior is the action. It's the thing, that's the, that's the point of action. That's the single occurrence, behaviors is the pattern, where action is the point. And then this ultimately determines the results we get. The problem is is that most lean, most lean journeys and most continuous improvement journeys and most uh, change efforts at all focus almost entirely on this. We tell people, go do 5S, go do this, go do that, and this is the result you're going to get. And I'll share a story about why that doesn't work and why ultimately we want sustainable change. We need to be focused up here. We need to be changing how people think. We need to be changing the behaviors that they get. Now, we can't just go in and tweak a button and change how people think. It's the experiences, and they have to act their way into that that thought process And those are the tactics we're gonna spend most of our time on today. So here's how this fits together with all the other pieces you see with continuous improvement. And this is a, a, a lens or a model that we call an operating system. We all have an operating system, every organization does. Most of them are designed by accident. They are simply the product of all the different decisions that we make. One component of this are the systems and tools. I'm sorry systems and processes. This is how how work is done. Uh, it's not just computer systems, obviously it's how, how our processes and how our work is is generated. We also also have the skills and tools. So if we were talking about a uh, skill and a tool of value stream mapping, it would fit into a system of, uh, of planning and strategizing. and then we have evaluation and metrics, which I very deliberately split out because people think evaluation is metrics, and metrics is just one tool in the evaluation, evaluation uh, system. So at the center of all this are the principles and behaviors. We, we need all four components to really have a true operating system. So it's not that principles and behaviors are the only thing that matter, it's that all four of these have to work together They have to support each other. So if I have a system that supports every person every day trying to make improvement, yeah. so that that part would be up here, and we design that system. But then I only evaluate people based on big improvements. One big improvement a year gets them going. And my principles and behaviors is that we do that ourselves. We go out and we start to drive one big improvement versus every person every day. So they wouldn't be consistent. We could build a system, but we don't have all the pieces that make that work. So when we start to think about an operating system, we had a a story, a situation, a journey at at Chrysler, which ultimately I would call failure. The journey through the the 1990s uh, for Chrysler was developing the Chrysler operating system. And the Chrysler operating system became one of the most benchmark systems in the world. And Chrysler became the most profitable car company in the world, significantly surpassing what Toyota was doing at that time. And we had defined the systems and processes, the skills and tools, the evaluation and metrics. But the principles were never really explored. And as a result, things worked very well as long as everybody could stay on script. But what happened is that one by one, the old principles and behaviors would come out and affect all the rest of the things, all the other components of this system. And ultimately, after, after some time, and the leaders that were designing the system and really living this system and carried the thinking with them left, the system left with them, and it all started to fall apart. And so the point is, is that we need to make sure that we have all of those components working together. I want to share where I started this. I certainly didn't have this understanding when we started the journey at Chrysler, but there was an early experience for myself when I was at Harley Davidson. Um, And this is really where I started my journey a long time ago. And I was a material handler, I'm sorry, I was a materials manager um, that was worried about a Kanban or pull system. And so, Kanban system has cards. In this case, this was you know, 25 years ago, so we didn't have a lot of digital technology. And it would send a signal back to a supplier who would provide parts to the internal customer. And what would happen is we had all sorts of shortages. We would constantly have trouble building, building product because we didn't have the right parts. And so what my boss wanted me to do was go in and destroy this system and replace it with a scheduled system that would just say at 2 o'clock on, on Tuesday, pick up this part at this time. Well, I went out and I did some observations. So I I went out, used my eyeballs, went to the Gemba, did direct observation, saw what was going on. What I saw was that the system worked fine. It was the behaviors that were wrong. People would grab cards ahead of time just to kind of get the ball rolling. They would stack extra parts when they were chroming them just to get a little ahead of the game. And what happened is they all thought they were doing the right thing. But what they were doing as a result was destroying the system. And so again, we can have all the systems that we want, we can have all the tools that we want, we can have all the right metrics that we want, but if we don't get the behaviors right, we're not going to have the results that we really want. So what I'm gonna share with you are three categories of tactics. Um, They fall under this. uh, This phrase, which we developed a while ago, is learn, apply, reflect. Now another term for this is head, hand, heart. And here's what we're trying to do with these components. First, we need to understand it. We need to get it into our head. We don't understand the behavior. It's not, going to, it's not going to be able to be replicated. So we need to create understanding. If I don't understand it, it's not going to go very far. Then we have to create experiences for people. That's the hand. We are a product of our experiences. And so if we want to have people believe different things, we have to create new experiences for them. And reflect is the internalization. So that's kind of where we use the word heart. Um, It is where it goes from belief to internalization, uh, from, from understanding to belief to internalization is just because we understand something does not mean we believe it, does not mean we've internalized it. So this is, I want to be very clear about this. Um, This is not a linear thing. We don't do one, and then we do the next, and then we do the next. This is a combination. So we need all three components. What I see most leaders do when they try to drive behavior change is they try one thing, find out it doesn't work, try another thing, Find out it doesn't work. Try another thing. Find out it doesn't work. Well, just based on, on this premise is that no way is that going to be enough. We really need a combination of experiences that come together to help people understand, experience, and internalize those behaviors. And once we do all of those things, now I have beliefs. Now I have principles. And so what I'm going to share with you is t- category or tactics for each one of these categories. And we're going to focus on them around really what are the different levers I can pull as I put together a strategy. You don't need all of them. I'm not going to suggest that's at all the case. You don't need every single tactic. But you make choices based on the circumstances you're in, including the role that you're in. And there's many that I'm going to show you that are free. Now, those are often the hardest ones to do. So they're not easy. I mean, we're talking about behavior change here. So easy is kind of already out the window. It's not going to be easy, but it doesn't have to require a big budget. We can change behavior just by having a deliberate plan, executing it well. So, let me start with the learn step. So, when we think about learn, we are going to talk about four specific tactics that we can take to make that work. One is training. Now, training. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, just go and stick people in a classroom. We still have to do it well, and I'll share a couple thoughts on that. I um, heard a great phrase the other day. I think it's actually from, uh, from Amai, is that training is for cats and dogs. Learning is for people. And so, again, yeah, training, just because we stick people in a classroom doesn't mean we need to throw PowerPoint at them and just run them through that, but it's still a very useful tool in our toolbox. So it has some pluses and minuses to it. Uh, The pluses are that we have control over it. Um, We know what people are going to experience. We know what they're going to go through. We know what the content is. It's also very efficient. We can can get a lot of content out to a lot of people in a short period of time. Um, And so that helps a great deal. Now, it also has some minuses. One is it's disconnected. It's not, we aren't talking about your work right now. I'm just sharing content. So we aren't, we aren't talking about this in your environment, at your point of activity, with a situation you have. We also treat it as one size fits all. And so you know we didn't survey you all and say, you know, what exactly uh, do you want to hear? Uh, we threw out a topic that we thought was interesting to a lot of people, and you, you uh, decided to sign up or not but we don't get to tailor it to every individual participant in the class. We certainly try tried, tried to as much as we can with stories and examples and interaction and all sorts of those things, but that's just doing the best we can with an imperfect situation. Now, if we're going to do training, I want to make sure we do it well. Um, there's a lot of different ways to be thinking about training. Um, one of our favorite approaches is what we, uh, what we call cascade training. And cascade training is simply where what we do is we take uh, take some content and we might have the, the president or the CEO train the VPs. And the VPs turn around and they train their directors. And directors train turn around and they train the managers and, and on you go. And this is great because if I'm taking this class and I'm listening to my president, I'm going to give it a little more attention not only because it's coming from a source that matters to me, but also because, uh, because I know that they're going to understand whether I got it or not afterwards. But also, if I have to then turn around and train other people, I better really make sure I prepare and understand the content because I don't want to look like a fool in front of my direct reports. Now, obviously, you do something like this. This is going to require both some time and some dollars. But it doesn't have to, right? That doesn't always have to work that way. Um, a great way to do some training uh, is simply with book clubs. Um, and I'll just use this example because it's something that I did. I, I was uh, um, in a in an operation where we were on second shift. No trainers would come and work with us. And so we actually took a couple books. Uh, we handed out a chapter. Everybody read a chapter each week. We read at nine, met at 9 p.m. on Tuesday nights and each person would take a turn leading the group. We'd read the, read the chapter. We'd discuss what it means to us. We'd come up with an assignment. we says, here's what we're going to do about it. We'd put it into action, and the next week we'd come back and take the next chapter. So just because we say training doesn't mean that it needs to cost a lot. So the next tactic in the learning step is coaching, which is really what I spend most of my time ending up doing. And coaching is great because it flips around these these concerns so it solves all the problems of training and also uh, introduces all of the all of the uh, de- destroys all the benefits so how does it how does it fail well it's highly variable it all depends on the situation the coach and the coaching and it's also very inefficient uh, it takes a lot of hours um, to coach and get that much content uh, across and I see as I'm spelling here that When you do this live, you get caught misspelling words. I'm just going to leave that alone. The benefits are that it's highly connected to your work because it is in the work at the point of activity with the problem that you face with the person. So it's highly connected, highly relevant, and it's highly custom. So it's based on what you need. I don't spend time talking about things you already know. I spend time working with you on the gaps that you have. And so for every failure that we have in, in training, we pick it up as a benefit in coaching and vice versa. Now, how do we do this? Now, we can certainly get be better at coaches. We can pick up tools and skills and mentalities and behaviors around being a coach. Um, the one most important thing that I want to emphasize in being a coach is that there's a big difference between coaching people towards a solution and coaching people towards a method. So you have to ask yourself, which one am I? Which one am I doing? Am I coaching people towards a solution, which is usually my solution? Am I coaching on them how to do the work, how to come up with the idea, how to make the improvements? So a big difference between those two. When uh, work with one organization that has very few lean experts in their organization, and so they start looking around and say, we can't do coaching because we don't know what we're talking about. Well, if we give them a skill of coaching even if they don't know how to do continuous improvement, they can still coach each other by asking the right questions and playing the right role. And all we're trying to do is help people go down the right path of what they're trying to do. One of my favorite tactics that often gets missed is the purposeful use of language. Language is a powerful tool to get ideas across. And so when we choose our words carefully, when we design words to be used as an educational tool, it can be a very powerful, powerful weapon. So I'll give you a couple examples. A lot of you, as organizations, might like to say that you are customer centric or customer focused. And that sounds good, but most organizations I meet use a similar phrase. It isn't really that compelling. It starts to look long and hard to find a customer, a company that isn't at least somewhat customer-focused. They might be vaguely aware that there's customers out there, but those aren't many. Amazon.com doesn't use that language. They use the words, customer-obsessed. Now, without describing what that means, you immediately have a different image about what that means. Now, all by itself that doesn't get you very far. I need to do more than simply introduce the language. But just by introducing the language, I get the idea across to other people that there is a different purpose between what when we say customer. Another example is at a company called Flinchball Engineering. Uh, Flinchball Engineering is uh, 100% employee owned. Uh, it went that way a, a, a little while ago, several years ago, 60% for a while. Now it's 100%. Great company, very engaged employees. And they use the word shareholder. So you are never introduced as an employee. You're not an employee You're an associate or a team member. You are a shareholder. And you will be referred to as a shareholder every single opportunity because it is a way to introduce people the idea, the principle, the belief, the behavior of acting differently as a shareholder. Not a to give somebody a share in the company, they have to believe that a certain behavior goes along with that. And so what's nice about language is it's free. It doesn't cost us anything, but we do have to be very careful about how we think about it and how we use it. The last one I talk about in the learn phase is I actually do hesitantly, mostly because we do it very poorly. What is benchmarking? I want to say when we do it poorly is, you know, we like to go on a trip. Um, I'll test exactly how poor my artistic skills are here. But we go on a trip. We like to go visit a company. We go visit some company and see what's going on at that organization. And we come up with some ideas. Say, ooh, you know, we we should adopt those ideas. Well, only if those ideas solve a real problem that you have. So what real benchmarking should look like is understand what problems you have. Go find a good company that has solved that. Go understand how their solution has helped them solve that problem, and then test it in your own environment. So as at DT Energy, we, we wanted to demonstrate to the executive team a different set of behaviors around the wall of a leader. So we found an organization about an hour drive away that we felt did a lot of things poorly, but what they really did right was the leadership engagement. Everywhere you went, you saw the leaders on the floor, and you saw them in a supportive role. And so we took that group of executives, and we visited this particular company. Now, all by itself, that wasn't enough, but it was a component of saying, this is what it looks like. This is the idea that we want you to emulate. So those are four tactics in the Learn Step. And the Learn Step is absolutely central. It's not as hard as what we're going to cover next, which is the apply step, but it is very, very important. So in the apply step, I'm going to talk about five tactics. And here's where we give people new experiences. So I'm going to talk about them as some formal experiences we can create for people and some informal. And this is where we often have to get creative. So one role in the formal uh, side is how we leverage events, you know, whether they're rapid improvement events or Kaizen events or simply projects. So an example, in one, in one hospital we were working with, we had, um, uh, we had a series of projects going on where the team was working on rapid improvement, not a rapid improvement event, but sort of continuous improvement, every person every day but focused around a narrow team. So it wasn't the entire hospital. It was a handful of people. And so what we asked is that any time that they ran into a problem, with whatever improvement they were trying to make, we wanted the president and the CMO to stop what they were doing, wherever that was, and come to the point of activity and work with that person to break through that barrier. Now, this isn't a sustainable practice. This isn't how we're going to solve every problem in a hospital. That would be crazy, and there's no way we have resources to to do that. But the point was it was an experience for those people to understand what it's like for the team at the front line to make an improvement every day. And what they find is little things that seem like they should be easy and the leader of the organization not understanding why it wasn't. And every time they got called to the floor, to the front line, to the point of activity, they found out that the seemingly simple stuff was actually very, very hard. And so those were creating experiencers for them. They were, they were an event for them. They were part of the improvement event. And their role wasn't to, uh, to help them with the improvement. Their role was to learn what problems the organization's really experienced. Another side of the formal, uh, formal category is the, is giving people new roles. I don't mean necessarily new jobs, because we play a lot of roles in the organization that aren't necessarily our job title. So of my favorite examples of this is a uh, organization I was working with in, in Israel that had a really engaged continuous improvement steering team. And it was made up of all the most passionate people in the organization around continuous improvement. And They came together, and they met, and they talked, and they led the organization, and all the other leaders in the organization would sit on the fence and be led by the steering team. None of them stepped up and took it to the next level because the steering team are the ones who had the ball. So what we did is we asked some of the steering team members, these passionate people who are driving continuous improvement, and we asked them, if we kicked you off the steering team, will you continue to be passionate about lean? Absolutely. Will you have more time to apply lean on an everyday basis? Probably. Okay, well, we're going to kick you off the team. Now, they really didn't want to leave this team. They put so much into leading this effort. We said, we want you to go back to your role and focus on just being a really good leader every day. And we're going to invite some of these fence sitters onto the committee, and they're going to help lead it. Now, those fence sitters could no longer sit on the fence. They either had to jump in, because now they were expected to lead it, or leave, which a couple of them did. Um, So we gave them a new role where they were sitting on the fence, and not because we needed them to, but because it forced them to experience lean by asking them to lead it. Now, the informal, these are often more powerful because there are things that we can build into the everyday fabric of the organization. The first, which I actually previewed this uh, presentation talking about on Mark's blog, is forced habits. And we actually do this all the time. We don't try to convince our kids that brushing their teeth is good for them and then try to logically appeal to them and give them an incentive to brush their teeth. No, we pretty much demand it. It is a forced habit. If they go to bed and they didn't brush their teeth, we drag them out and we go make them brush their teeth. It's not, it's not that we're being disrespectful of them. It's not that we don't respect their ability to make their decision. But we override that right in a situation where we know more than they do. So as an example of this, when I was in an organization leading an operation, um, I had a situation where people would come to their, our daily meeting, we had a daily meeting talking about performance, and all the other leaders would come to this meeting and talk about the previous day's problems. And we'd try and solve it. We'd debate and argue and, and go nowhere, really. And when I started testing it, I realized that nobody on the team, nobody in the room had actually seen the problems we were discussing. So I put in a rule. It was a rather draconian rule, but it worked. And it is, you do not get an opinion unless you've seen the problem. Now, what this was meant to do was, before we have our meeting, go and see the problem, come to the meeting, and then let's have a fruitful discussion. Now, everybody wants to have an opinion, so they made sure that they went off to go see the problem. And sure enough, that certainly improved our meeting, but that wasn't really why I was doing it. What really happened is they started going to observe all their problems, because they had that, that much of experience where when they started going to see the problem, they learned something. And that experience helped them change their belief about what they thought they knew and what they really knew. And so that turned into a new behavior for them that lasted beyond my meeting. In another organization in and in a board of directors I sat on, the team had a really hard time thinking strategically. So we put a forced habit on that. They, every, every board meeting, they would come to us with departmental presentations. Here's the HR department. Here's the operations department. Here's the finance department. And so we said, no, once we have a strategy, that's the only thing we want to hear about. You have five strategic points, and we want all we want to hear is five strategic points. Well, the first meeting was a disaster. All they did was they took the first set of slides that they would normally present, and they just tried to reorganize them in the five categories of the strategy. It didn't make sense. It was a horrible board meeting. Everybody was confused, but we insisted on it, and they did that over and over and over until it became a habit. They thought about their presentation in terms of strategy. They thought about their plans in terms of strategy, and once we just started forcing them thinking through what they did, in our case, just in a presentation, then they started to think that way through other aspects of life. So forced habits is a useful way to give people an experience. And we also have role model. And role model is one of my favorite, but it's also one of the most poorly done. And here's why. You're not being a role model unless somebody sees you do it. Okay, so if you do the right thing when nobody's looking, good for you. That's the, that's the right thing to do. But that's not being a role model. Being a role model means somebody has to see you do it, and they have to understand it. So if we don't let somebody see it, it's not being a role model. This doesn't mean we fabricate uh, experiences, but we may have to plan them. We may have to stage them a bit. They still might be genuine, but we need to create experiences where we get to role model in a visible way the right behavior. Now, this is uncomfortable for people because it feels like bravado feels like bragging. It feels like showing off. Hey, look at me. Look at, I can be lean too. But that's just tough. That's the price we pay for being a leader. It's going to be uncomfortable. But you can't be a role model unless somebody sees you do it. So we have a leader in one organization as their effort to be a role model. Is every meeting that they go to, if you sit down with this person, they are going to ask you to do an A3. They're going to break out a sheet, and if you're going to talk about a problem, then let's define the problem state. If we want to talk about the current states, and let's talk about the current states. And so they, sh- they role model that behavior every time. If they're bringing an idea to you, they're going to bring you an, an A3. And if they're asking you to bring an idea, they're either going to expect it or they're going to pull one out and make you go through it. So when we start to we role model, again, we have to do it in a visible way. So another one, which is really in between, it's both, we can, both formal and informal, is recognition and reaction. So this isn't just about reward. Reward can be a form of recognition. Um, but it's, it's really about how we react to the things that we have going on. And this is both removing the negatives and creating the positives. So as an example of, of removing the negatives, um, when I was in an operation, when I was leading an operation, I was paid based on safety, quality, delivery, cost and morale. And so these things determined my bonus. However, I would only get a phone call. So the phone would only ring from the CEO of the organization when I missed on delivery. Well, we tried to set up an incentive that said all of these were important. But they weren't all important because the phone only rang when delivery was missed. And this sent a message to the organization that it really was delivery that mattered. Big D delivery mattered and everything else was secondary. Well, this clearly wasn't what we intended, so we had to remove that negative. Now, I started by trying to remove it by just not letting anybody know that they called. But no matter how hard I tried, the secret got out. Everybody somehow knew. So then we had to have a tough adult conversation where we said, look, you either need to beat me up for all of this stuff or stop beating me up for delivery. But we can't continue to only make phone calls when we miss on delivery. So that was the removal of a negative reaction. It was creating an experience for people that was driving the wrong behavior. So recognition and reaction happens in a lot of ways. worked with one organization that was really good at recognition. So if they sat a bunch of people together in a meeting and they had an agenda, first on the agenda was always recognition. That who wants to say who did a good job? Who wants to say thank you? Who wants to say great job? Whatever they want to do, they created an opportunity and all their means to do that. However, when they started doing that, what they noticed was what they would recognize people for was putting out the fires. So they would ask people to you know, put out the fires, and they'd say, good job, you put out the fire in your apartment. Your apartment fell apart, and you guys worked really hard. You worked 13-hour days. You did everything you could, and now that fire is out. But the problem was is that same person owned the department. They owned the match. And so what we were really doing was rewarding the arsonist because we are providing recognition for someone for putting out their own fires. So all we asked people to do, which was a hard thing to do, but again, another free thing to do, was we just asked people to start to give recognition for doing systematic things, putting out the fires before they got started, putting in good checks, putting in good support, helping each other, developing resources, whatever it might be, let's stop recognizing people for heroic firefighting. Let's start recognizing people for doing the proactive, preventive stuff. And so they had the recognition opportunity, but what do we choose to recognize people for makes a big deal. This often happens. This is why I talk about recognition and reward. Reward is just a part of that. And here's what happens in a lot of organizations. A person comes along, and they have an idea. And their idea is going to save a bunch of money. So in order to create a reward, we say, well, we're going to take 10% of that, and we're going to give it back to you as a reward. So the behavior that that drives is that If that person has a whole bunch of little ideas that they think might help the organization, but none of them are worth it to make the cut for a system like that, they just discard all of them. They say, little ideas don't matter. Only big ideas do. Only ones that I can get some money for. And so we have to be very careful when we develop reward systems for continuous improvement because my experience, three out of four times, They become counterproductive. So then we'll move on to the last stage of this, and then we'll open it up for questions, and this is the reflect stage. I don't know if reflect is the most important, but I will say that without it, it just isn't going to go very far. We don't internalize. And this is how we get people to think about what they're doing. So one way to do this is with events. Formal reflection. So one of my favorite tools from this, we actually borrowed from the U.S. Army, is called the After Action Review. It's a way to build in reflection. And it's just basically four questions. I'll write them in in an abbreviated form. One is, you know, what, what, what was supposed to happen? What was our plan? Did we even go into the event, whatever that event was, with a good plan? Second is, well, what did happen and why? What was our current state? What actually occurred? Now, to do that, we're going to have to observe during the event. Third, what can we learn? What weaknesses can we improve? And what, what, uh, uh, what strengths can we sustain? What worked? which I actually think is more important than people give it credit for. Just because it's working well doesn't mean that it's self-sustaining. And then last, what are we going to do? What's our action? How are we going to build new standards, new, new high agreements about how we operate based on what we just learned? And so reflection can happen a lot a lot of different ways. Here's a really missed opportunity in my experiences. We put people through a Kaizen event or a rapid improvement event or whatever you call it. We stick people in a room for three to five days to work heads down focus on one really serious process improvement. And then we get to the end and we send them all back to their jobs. What do they do? Catch up on email. They don't change anything in their behavior based on going through that event. So, all we need to do is take 10 minutes at the end of that Kaizen event or rapid improvement event and ask people, what did you learn or experience in this event that you can carry back to your own work? And you know, we kind of hope that just by osmosis, they're going to do that on their own. Well, we find some people that, yeah, that weekend they sit down, and they think about why that was successful, and they try to take some lessons away from it. But those are the exceptions. We need to help people by creating those reflection opportunities. Now, the other way we create reflection is through questions. The questions that we ask people, and I don't mean requests for information. That's not it. And I don't mean advocacy kind of questions. I mean questions that force people to think. There is no answer to most of these questions. There's there's information, There's there are answers, but there's no single answer those questions, they force people to think. You get into their head. So as an example of this, worked with one leader who, every time somebody would come to him and propose anything, whether it was people sitting in the staff um, as his peers, one of his direct reports, another department, he would always ask the same thing. What problem are you working on? He would ask people that question all the time, to the point where people started to turn it into a joke, just to have fun, oh, you wanna, what do you want to go for lunch? Well, what problem are you trying to solve? So they'd have some fun with it, but at the end of the day, they all knew that half the time he asked that question, none of them knew what problem they were working on, yet they already had a solution. So he carried that question around with them and he didn't have to do a whole lot else. He asked that question several times a day. Just by asking the question, it exposed people the gaps in their own thinking. And it helped internalize them because they were trained on how to do problem solving. This wasn't a training gap. They had done problem solving, so they knew how to do it. They hadn't internalized problem solving. And so they weren't even asking themselves, what problem am I trying to solve? Worked with another uh, CEO who would do calls with his different groups. And he'd have he had sites all over the country. And it was actually called an innovation call. And he'd call each one, and they'd tell them about all his innovations. He'd call another one, and they'd tell them about all his innovations. But he would never see the same thing twice, going from location to location to location. So he added one question to his uh, to his innovation call. What idea did you steal from someone else? And so the first time I participated in this call, when he did it in the first time, and he asked the the general manager, what question did you steal, or what idea did you steal from someone else? And the silence, you could almost hear the silence. You could hear people turning their head and looking at each other and saying, who's got something? Because none of them did. And they realized that. This was a moment of insight, of internalization, of reflection that said, you know what, we have 84 other locations out there. One of them has to have a decent idea. Maybe we have the best something out there is worth feeling. So pretty soon he started going along and seeing ideas stolen from each other just because they started to realize this is a behavior that they admit. So the point is, again, we go back to this, and we need all three of these. We need learn, apply, reflect. And we need to develop tactics in each one of these categories, regardless of our budget, so that we have a deliberate strategy to design our culture instead of end up with the accidental culture, the culture created as a product of all our unplanned experiences instead of our planned experiences. So this has been a tool that I found very helpful to work with leaders to build strategies to, to, to reflect on their own impact on the organization and uh, encourage you to try and use it as well.
0: So here is uh, Jamie's contact info, if you'd like to follow up with him. Follow him on Twitter, at flinchbaugh. There's his email address. And if you're ready, Jamie, let's uh, let's take a look at some questions. Yep, very good. Here is a question from uh, Jennifer. Uh, she says, Jamie said, reward systems for continuous improvement can become counterproductive. Can you elaborate and provide an example of why, in your opinion, reward systems can be counterproductive?
1: So what happens is we we design a reward system. We want to make it fair, um, and we also want to make it measurable. Right? We don't want to just uh, start giving out dollars for general feelings about how well people are behaving around continuous improvement. So we try to we end up resorting to measuring what is easy instead of what is right. So what happens is we reward we, we people and we give out a bonus for everybody that's done X number of improvement events. So um, a long time ago, I was tasked with 100 improvement or 100 Kaizen events in a year. So pretty soon, any meeting that lasted over lunch was called a Kaizen event mm. because that was what was being measured and that was what was being rewarded. Um, similarly, if we say, well, you're going to get 10% of any idea that you have, well, only the ideas that can be easily measured in cost and ideas that are worth bothering to measure in cost, then make the cut. So I want to improve customer service. Well, can't measure that, so you're you're not going to get credit for that. Want to improve safety. Want to improve quality. Want to improve employee satisfaction. Sorry, don't have dollar figures for those. Those aren't going to account. So pretty soon, the only behavior is drive out cost. And what happens is, you know, I've never seen an organization cut their way to prosperity. We've cut our way to survival but we need those other performance areas to really build a thriving organization. But we can measure cost improvements easily, so that's all we focus on. So those are, those are things that I've observed in organizations that have led to the wrong behaviors. And so I don't discourage reward. Um, I just caution to make sure that it's tied to the right behaviors. Um, and if you're not measuring just what's easy, you're measuring what's right.
0: Thanks, Jamie. I I would just add a quick point. I think one other way reward systems get dysfunctional, the the classic suggestion box reward approach was to promise people um, some set percentage of any cost savings. So kind of to your point, clearly that type of suggestion system is only asking people to come up with cost savings. And there's all sorts of dysfunctions where if there's that quid pro quo promise, uh, people end up arguing and fighting over the value of the idea and colleagues, co-workers, shareholders end up fighting with each other. Well, we, we talked about an idea over lunch and you submitted it, Jamie. <clears throat> and Jamie, yep. yeah. <laughs> now, Jamie, you got never that, a don't.
1: team idea. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, suggestion box systems are almost always built around an individual. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good to be really careful about doing those. It's hard to do them in a way that's not dysfunctional. Um, we've Got another question here, Jamie, from uh, Jason who asks, how does the existing entrenched culture get in the way of this approach? Is there a point where you need to just blow the culture up and rebuild or 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 what?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not really sure how you blow the culture up. So you, you do it in the same way, uh, using the same thing. So Again, behaviors are a product of our experiences, um, and, and so the organization is a product of their collective experiences. So the only way to really blow it up is to remove all the people that had those experiences and insert new people. Now, I don't think it's ever too late to do that for a whole organization, except maybe Congress, um, but we, we will find people where they're in a key role of influence. and so. Every experience they create for people is magnified, So this person, two people ask the same question. For one person, it's a magnified experience for everybody else. One word, and everybody's everybody's reacting to it. So those are opportunities where we might need to blow up the organization, at least in key leverage point for resources. Um, But it's never really too gone to change the culture. We just have to choose one behavior at a time. So the one thing I would caution that I didn't really say yet is we don't, we don't drive continuous improvement behaviors in a generic way. We develop them in specific ways. Well, I want you to go and observe before we talk about a problem. I want you to define your problem before we start to try to solve it. These are specific, definable, observable behaviors. And if an organization is so far gone that you can't find an ounce of goodness in there, hmm. then pick one behavior to start with and start turning the ship. But you have to pick wisely, and, and that's I'll say I didn't talk much about that because um, because I don't really have a science for how do you pick the right behavior to start with. But you do have to be strategic. What's, what behavior, if we changed it, is really going to get people moving the other direction? Is it stop working in silo mentality? Is it simply just start doing anything about continuous improvement? Is it putting the customer first? And so in many cases, when we pick one, especially if this is a really entrenched behavior, we have to pay attention to the experiences we create, but we also have to remove any experiences that are still creating the old culture. So this becomes a remove experiences for people and a create new experiences. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, thanks, Jamie. Uh, We've got another question uh, from Karen. Hi, Karen. Um, The culture is our biggest stumbling block with the professional services firms we work with. Our clients tend to work in silos, and it's very difficult to break down the walls between them. How do you deal with silos?
1: Yeah, so silos, I kind of came up in the, my last answer in the sense that it is it is one of those behaviors which, which gets very entrenched. And it is a product of incentives uh, tied to the department. It is a product of simply working with the department and uh, being friends with the people in your function and not with others. So it's a product of many, many experiences. So, again, we have to create experiences that force people to work outside of their silo in some way. And I'll just create a, give a couple of ex- examples of this. Um, one is that when we think about metrics is one thing that we use for, for helping create those experiences, um, we've had, we had groups that would start to adopt either a holistic set of metrics. So if there's three departments, uh, we will all adopt performance metrics for any reward, so either all win or we all fail. Now, it's no longer, well, I did well and you didn't, and I want to make sure my metric looks good while your doesn't. And we've also even taken that even further, where departments would adopt a metric that is the success of their internal customer. So, if I'm, if I'm a parts supplying organization to a, uh, a group that needs to maintain equipment, then I'm going, I don't care just about the supply time of the part, I'm going to worry about uptime because that's what my customer cares about. So do we measure what we care about or do we measure what our customer cares about? In another example, um, we had an organization where the forecasters, uh, people that forecasted markets and demand for products, uh, it would all sit and all reported up to the CFO. The merchants who planned the products all reported up to the VP of sales. Now we weren't going to change the organizational structure. But all we did was change the seating arrangement. So every little cubicle area that would have two desks had a forecaster and had a merchant. Now instead of waiting for a meeting or sending an email, they turned their chair and talk to their cubicle mate. And and so now they built a relationship that said the relationship was just as important as my department. And it changed their behaviors quite drastically of not being two departments but being one. So. It is a very entrenched behavior in some organizations. So we have to think very carefully about how we can, again, create new experiences that teach people that they don't win as a department. We win as an organization.
0: Okay, thanks, Jamie. Uh, We've got a question uh, from Stacy who asks, do these concepts need modification in public service settings, especially what you say about rewards?
1: Um, I think the strategies don't need behavior, uh, need changing. I think simply what tools and levers we have available to us. So reward probably isn't a big tool that we have available to us. One because there it isn't usually a big portion of pay and second because it's often predetermined in some way. Uh, we may not be able to leverage that in a lot of ways. So we need to create other experiences. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was in a situation where uh, I was paid based on one set of metrics, but the prevailing behavior was driven by an experience, not by the reward. And I truly believe that the experiences we surround people uh, with are more powerful than the dollars that we pay them as simply one form of experience. So the reason I share with you all of those different tactics is that we have to make choices about... Which ones are opportunities for me, given my situation, given my role, given the type of environment that I'm in, um, and, and given my budget even? I may have zero control over any budget. Well, I'm not going to introduce rewards and training as a tool. I'm going to choose the language and role modeling, because those are the things that I can control. So, um, And so you still have to start with you know what is going to influence people, and then how do I pick? this tactics but I have to deliberately plan them and then again because I don't have things like financial rewards that I can use significantly in that kind of setting I need to then outweigh them with other types of experiences
0: okay thanks Jamie well we are just about at the top of the hour so we'll go ahead and wrap up I want to again thank uh, our, our good friend and guest Jamie Flinchbaugh for uh, sharing uh, your, your thoughts and stories and experiences with us I do recommend it if you'd like to read more uh, of, of Jamie's thoughts, you can go to his website and his blog at jamieflinchbaugh.com, and his book *The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean* is available uh, at Amazon and other online bookstores. Uh, it's a great read and uh, really recommended if you're if you're new to Lean, it'll help get you started. If you have a uh, good amount of experience with Lean, there, there's always some new insight that uh, you would get from that. So um, thank you again for joining us on behalf of the team at Kinexus and Jamie. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you.